ESPN, Pinellas Park, W262CP, Bayonet Point. Brought to you by Moss Nissan. Moss Nissan. Portions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Odyssey. The following program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. In Romans chapter 11, after raising the question of God's relationship with Israel, has he rejected his people? The Apostle Paul makes it very clear that God is not finished with his ancient people. He says in um, the second part of verse 1, may it never be. That's a strong language in the original Greek. It means perish the thought. Don't even think such a thing. We would say something like, it is so hideous, this thought that don't even consider it. Why is it so hideous? Because if God has rejected the Jewish people, then God has not been honest and faithful to keep his word. If you know anything about the Old Testament, you'll know that God made repeated promises to Israel that they were his people and that they would endure forever. And if you know anything at all about history, you know that Hitler's final solution, the extermination camps, was just another in a 2,000-year effort by Satan to exterminate God's people. If God wanted the Jews removed, you think he could have managed it by now, but he doesn't. His promises are eternal and unchanging. Do you remember that old hymn, Standing on the Promises? The second verse says, Standing on the promises that cannot fail, when the howling storms of doubt and fear assail, by the living word of God I shall prevail, standing on the promises of God. Welcome to Verse by Verse with Pastor Teacher Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Today we begin a three-part message that is the second in this series about the nature of the church. Our main text is Matthew 16, but we'll be looking at several other passages that help illuminate what Jesus told Peter there in Matthew. If God has broken his promises to Israel, how can we stand on his promises to us? I've heard from quite a few people that the church has replaced Israel in God's sovereign plan to redeem the world and mankind. Let's see what the Bible has to say about that idea. Here's Pastor Steve. Let's open our Bibles once again to our continuing study in Matthew's Gospel. We are now at Matthew chapter 16, and we're doing really a, um, a little mini-series on the nature of the church using this passage of Scripture to address what Jesus meant by what he said, but also using this as a springboard into other scriptures that help to clarify and really expand these embryonic initial truths concerning the church. Now, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said in verses 18 and 19, speaking to Peter, he said, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. When Frederick the Great, who was the king of Prussia, asked his chaplain to give him, in one word, just one word, the strongest evidence for the validity of the Bible, his chaplain's reply was Israel. Israel. See, the continued existence of the Jewish people long after other civilizations had died off is testimony to the trustworthiness of the Word of God. Because in ancient times, about 4,000 years ago, with the calling of Abraham, God brought the Jewish nation into existence, 
as his special and his chosen and unique people. And he gave them marvelous, wonderful promises, promises concerning a coming literal physical kingdom on earth. He gave them promises of a land on earth to possess. He gave them promises of the many blessings of salvation. And the reason, folks, that he has preserved the Jewish people for all of these centuries is so that he can fulfill all of these promises to them. His integrity is at stake. However, in the first century, several years after the death and resurrection of our Lord, there were many people who began to wonder and voice out loud if God wasn't finished with Israel. They speculated that God may have permanently cast Israel aside and canceled all of his promises to them. See, although there were many Jewish individuals in Israel who believed in Jesus as the Messiah, as a nation, as a national entity, Israel rejected Jesus. Led by their Jewish religious leaders, they said, no, he's a fake. He's a fraud, and we reject him. And as a result of this national rejection, some wondered if God had rejected them. And so, because this question over God's relationship with Israel was on the hearts and minds of so many believers in the first century, the Apostle Paul was compelled to address this issue, and he did so not in Matthew 18, Paul hasn't come, or 16, Paul hasn't come on the scene yet, but in Romans chapter 11. So if you'll turn there while keeping your place in Matthew, I want to show you something. Romans chapter 11 is critical in our understanding, and I'm doing this so that you understand the distinction between Israel and the church. Any series on the church, we need to define this, and I don't know where else to place this, and so right at the very sort of the beginning of this series, I want you to see this. In Romans 11, verse 1, the Apostle Paul asks a question. He says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? Now, by people, he means Israel, his ancient people. This is a question that has been asked many times. It was asked by Paul, but it's been asked by many people throughout the centuries and people today. Biblically oriented people have asked this question. As I said, it is still being asked by many today. But those who, and it's being asked by those who want to understand what is the relationship of God to Israel? What is the place of Israel in the plan of God now that they have rejected officially their Messiah? But unlike the Apostle Paul, who went on to answer his own question with an emphatic, no, may it never be. He said that in verse 1. Most people today from within, and I'm using this very widely, the, the broadest ranks of Christendom would answer in the affirmative. Even many true believers would say, yes, God has rejected Israel. He has finished with them as his covenant people. And all of those promises that he gave them concerning a land, a kingdom, and blessings of salvation have been permanently canceled. In fact, if you know people who are from a, what we typically call a reformed background, that is probably what they hold to. In fact, for the last 2,000 years, most of Christendom has embraced the view that God has forever cut off Israel for her rejection of Christ. And the reason they believe this is the same reason some believed it in Paul's day, and it is directly related to our study of Matthew chapter 16. 
Because in Matthew 16, Jesus spoke of a new community of believers that he was about to establish known as the church. He said, I will build my church. In this statement, the Lord revealed that he was going to bring into existence a group of believers, which he called the church, not Israel. He called them the church. This was something brand new. It wasn't in existence at the time he spoke these words. That's why he spoke in the future sense. He said, I will build my church, not I'm now doing it. I will in the future. Now, as I mentioned to you last week, as far as we know, this was the very first time Jesus used this word with his disciples, the word church. However, although he may not have used the word church before, the Lord certainly indicated during his ministry with his disciples that in the future, those who would come to believe in him, who as we know it, would make up his church, would consist of Gentiles as well as Jewish people. The Lord never hid that fact from his disciples. He first alluded to this in Matthew chapter 8. So now you need to keep your place in Matthew 16, Romans 11, and we go to Matthew 8. This is why it's good to bring bookmarkers to uh, church on Sunday. Matthew chapter 8. And I want you to see this. The Lord is dealing with a Gentile Roman centurion, that is to say that he was a, a Roman soldier who had people under him. He wants Jesus to heal his slave, who's quite ill, at death's door. And we break in at verse 8. But the centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I'm also a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this. And he does it. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled. And he said to those who were following, remember, there are Jewish people who are following. He's in Capernaum. Truly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. He was most impressed with this Gentile man who understood that it was faith in his word. He understood the authority of the word of God. He said, Jesus said, I've not seen anything like this amongst any Jewish person I've encountered In Israel. And he said in verse 11, I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, what was the Lord talking about? What was he saying here? Jesus said that in the future, Many Gentiles from the east and west, meaning the east and west of Israel, outside of Israel, will believe on him the way that this Gentile Roman centurion believed on him. And as a result, they will join Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Jewish patriarchs, the fathers of the Jewish people in his kingdom. But sadly, Jesus said, many Jewish people, he didn't mean all of them, but many Jewish people who expect to be in his kingdom because they are physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob won't be there. They won't be there. Now, the Lord first introduced that in Matthew chapter 8. But later, towards the end of his ministry, Jesus made it very clear that the Gentiles will most certainly be included in his church. In John chapter 10, which is a marvelous marvelous chapter in which Jesus speaks about being the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. He says something that has been absolutely highly misunderstood 
by many, many people. Cults tend to misunderstand this, specifically the Mormon church banks on this verse saying that this is a promise about Mormons. It has absolutely nothing to do with that. Notice John chapter 10, verse 14. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. What a marvelous truth. He dies for his own. I have other sheep, he said, which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Jesus was talking about Gentile sheep. He was saying, I'm talking about a cult. He's talking about Gentile sheep. He said that, that it wasn't only Jewish sheep that he would lay his life down for and die, die for and call to himself. There were Gentiles, another fold who would be brought together to make up one flock. He would lay his life down for Gentile sheep as well, who would also respond to his call to salvation. So Jesus really never hid the fact that the church would consist of Jewish people as well as Gentiles. Then the question we need to ask is this, then why then did so many in Paul's day, why do so many in our day, and believe me, so many do, why do they think that God has rejected Israel? And the answer is because they think that when Jesus said, I will build my church, he was stating that he was about to set aside Israel permanently as the people of God, and watch this, replace her with the church as his new and only covenant people. That is known today as replacement theology. In fact, somebody just came up to me a few weeks ago and asked me about that. They're in a Bible study that teaches that, not here at Lakeside, or they would not be teaching that. But in another study, outside of our church, they were. It's called replacement theology. Interesting to me, those who believe that only say that the church replaces Israel with the blessings, but never the cursings. Israel gets the cursings, the church gets the blessings. Now, that's replacement theology. And the fact that the church consists of so many more Gentile believers today than Jewish believers, while Israel continues to nationally reject Jesus, does appear, in their view, to support this belief that God is through with Israel and has rejected her with the predominantly Gentile church. But is this a valid conclusion? I say with the Apostle Paul, may it never be. God forbid, it is not. That is not what Scripture teaches. If you look back at Romans 11, we will see what Scripture teaches. In Romans chapter 11, after raising the question of God's relationship with Israel, has he rejected his people? The Apostle Paul makes it very clear that God is not finished with his ancient people. He says in um, the second part of verse 1, may it never be. That's a strong language in the original Greek. It means perish the thought. Don't even think such a thing. We would say something like, it is so hideous, this thought, that don't even consider it. Why is it so hideous? Because if God has rejected the Jewish people, then God has not been honest and faithful to keep his word. If God has not been faithful to Israel, you can't count on him to be faithful to the church. Paul says, God forbid, he is not through with Israel. May it never be. And then he gives one of his supports for this answer. There are a number of them. We'll only look at this one in this setting. He says, here's his answer. Here's his proof that God has not rejected Israel. For I too, he says, am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, 
of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was an esteemed tribe. Now, what is Paul saying? Listen closely. Paul's point here is not simply that he is a Jewish person that God has saved, and therefore we know that he'll save other Jewish people. That's not his point at all. His point is this, that at one point in his life, he was the most wicked, Christ-rejecting Jewish person on the planet. Remember Paul. Paul persecuted Christians, threw them in prison, delighted in their murder. Paul was sadistic. Paul was evil. Saul, as he was known then, was hostile. He ridiculed Christ. He blasphemed Christ. He hated him. He scorned him. He scorned other believers. And yet God saved him. Now, folks, here's, here's what he's saying. If you think that God has rejected the nation of Jewish people because they have rejected Christ and solely because of that, then what do you do with Paul, who is the worst of all Jewish Christ rejectors? If he saved him, why do you think that rejection means he will reject them? He didn't reject him. He saved him. It's a brilliant argument. There was no one who opposed Jesus Christ more than the Apostle Paul. If God saved Paul, even though he was the greatest rejecter, don't think for a moment he's going to reject the nation based on them rejecting him. He goes on to further explain that Israel, due to her unbelief, has not been permanently cast aside by God. But, he says, he compares her to a person who has just temporarily stumbled but we'll get up again. Notice verse 11. He says, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. There's that may it never be again. In other words, Israel's stumbling and rejecting Christ doesn't mean that she has hit the ground so hard that her fall is a permanent falling away in the sense that she will be like this forever in rejection and unbelief. Paul says that her fall is only a temporary stumbling. She was just tripped up. It's a temporary stumbling in the sense that God has set her aside right now. Just right now, temporarily. While he's not at work in her, in her midst as a people like he used to be, like he was in Old Testament times. But he says this condition is only temporary. It's not permanent. So the question we need to ask is this. Why has God allowed this? Why has God allowed Israel to stumble over Jesus? And they did stumble. He is the chief cornerstone, and they stumbled over him. Why? What possible divine purposes could be served by the present rejection of Christ by the Jewish people? Don't think it was an accident. It's all under the sovereign plan of God. The answer is given to us in the second part of verse 11. He says, but... By their transgression, and their transgression is their unbelief he's talking about, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous, to make the Jewish people jealous. What an incredible statement. Paul is saying that when the vast majority of Jewish people initially turned away from the message of Christ in the early days of gospel preaching, God then turned the gospel away from them and sent it into where? The Gentile world. That's precisely what we see verified in the book of Acts. When the message of salvation was met with opposition and deep-seated hostility by Jewish community after 
Jewish community, the apostles, and other first century gospel witnesses, turned to the Gentiles and found them to be much more receptive to the message of salvation. That pattern has continued to this day. Jewish people, for the most part, are not that responsive to the gospel. There are some, but not compared to Gentiles. Although there are some Jewish people, Paul explains in this chapter, in every generation who believe in Jesus, they're known as the remnant, a small minority from the majority of the nation of Israel, the remnant. By far, though, the largest number of people who believe in the Lord and who make up his church are Gentiles. And by Gentiles, I simply mean non-Jews. But here's the question we need to ask. Does this then, this large influx of Gentiles into the church, mean that God has replaced Israel with the church so that all of his promises given to the physical children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are they all now null and void? Well, you know the answer Paul already gave it. He said, absolutely not. Look at verse 12. This is his answer. And and you'll marvel when, when you see this. Now, he says, if, in verse 12, if their transgression, meaning the Jewish people's unbelief, is riches for the world, and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Now, what's he talking about? He's saying if Israel's lost today in not believing in Jesus, that's the transgression, their unbelief. If their loss today is the gain of Gentiles who believe, then what riches are in store for the whole world when God restores the Jewish nation to her position of privilege, meaning belief, and then the blessings of the millennial kingdom. What a statement. See, Paul teaches that God is not through with Israel. They will believe. They will have these promises fulfilled. They will be a part of the blessings of the kingdom. There is a kingdom on earth that is coming, that awaits them, and all of his promises to Israel will eventually be fulfilled. Therefore, the Lord has not replaced Israel with the church. The church and Israel, note this. This is the reason I'm going over this now in this study on the church. The church and Israel are two distinct and separate peoples, and they have two distinct and separate programs. While today, Jesus is building his church by calling out both Jewish and predominantly Gentile peoples to believe in him, Paul taught that someday the entire nation of Jewish people alive at the time will be converted. Notice what he said in Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 25. For I don't want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. So you'll not be wise in your own estimation. He's talking to a predominantly Gentile church, and he said, I don't want you to think that you're better than the Jewish people because you believe and you've experienced the blessings of salvation. Don't be arrogant. Don't be wise in your own estimation. And then he explains that a partial hardening has happened to Israel. The partial hardening means it's only temporary. It's just in part. It's not forever. Until, he says, it's coming to a close, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so that last Gentile is added to the church age. Then it's over. Then God then turns his attention back to Israel, works in her in a marvelous way, which he explains in verse 26 by saying, and so all Israel will be saved. Now, folks, don't misunderstand. Paul is not saying that all Jewish people forever will be saved just because they're Jewish people. 
What he is saying is all Jewish people, the entire nation alive at the time, at the end of the great tribulation period, shortly before Jesus returns to earth, all those Jewish people who are alive will be converted. The majority of the nation will be saved. That's going to be a dramatic day when so many people trust Christ all at once. Pastor Steve will continue to develop that thought on our next Verse by Verse. Steve Kreloff is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. He's leading us in a series of lessons about the nature of the church. Verse by Verse is a ministry of Lakeside, and you can find out more about us at versebyverseradio.org. It's the perfect place to turn if you missed part or all of the lesson and want to catch up on it. That's versebyverseradio.org. If the Lord has been blessing you through these broadcasts, would you prayerfully consider helping fund them? It is the grace of God and the gifts of folks like you who give over and above their regular church offerings that keep us on the air. And if you are already supporting through prayer or giving,